Well, welcome back. We had a break last week because we had an unexpected scheduling conflict. That won't happen very often, but as some of you know, we've had a spate of funerals, unfortunately, at St. Philip's, and because we had so many, we had to put one in on a Thursday, and that conflicts with this Bible study because they needed a reception. So it's not something that we're going to do on a regular basis, but from time to time that sort of thing happens. And we're praying we don't have too many more funerals, um, but sometimes it does happen. At any rate, we are in Romans chapter 11 today, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Romans chapter 11. And we are going to really begin today looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. Paul writes, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, Paul's talking when he says they about the Jews. He said, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Now what Paul has been talking about here in Romans chapter 11 is the future of Israel. Israel as a nation. You'll recall that this is really Paul's response to the challenge that had been presented as to whether or not God had forsaken his ancient people. We said it was an argument that began way back in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 8, that high point of the epistle, Paul talks about the fact that for those who are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate us from God's love. He said there is no separation there is no condemnation, and there is no defeat for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the theme, basically, of Romans chapter 8. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no separation, there is no condemnation, and there is no defeat. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, that's wonderful. But somebody raises the objection and says, well, now, wait a minute. If that is true, doesn't it appear as though God has rejected his own people? And if God has rejected his own people and made a covenant with them centuries before, and it appears that they have rejected the gospel, well, if that is the case, then how can we be sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Because if God has broken his covenant with Israel, how do we know he's not going to break his covenant with us? And what Paul does then in the successive chapters in 9, 10, and 11 is he's giving a response to that, to that objection. And he's going on to prove that that is not the case. God has not rejected his ancient people, and therefore God will not reject us. And we are coming to the end of that argument here in Romans chapter 11. Now, what Paul does is he talks about God's plan for Israel, but in that context, he also talks about God's plan for the Gentiles. And God's plan is really quite remarkable. 
You've heard me talk about this before. What God has done is he has called to himself a particular man, Abraham. And from this particular man, he calls a particular nation, Israel, the Jews. And from these particular people, he is bringing a particular Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will make a new people for himself, a people who are both Jews and Gentiles, that is the church. And as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, what is going to happen is that it will be the means by which the Jews, who have largely rejected the Messiah, will be provoked to jealousy. And then in the end, there will be a great revival among God's ancient people at the end of time. And that's what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 11. So we Gentiles have a part to play. It's part of God's great grand, grand, grand plan of salvation for the redemption of the whole world. You may recall, because we just celebrated it not long ago, you may recall the story of how Jesus was presented in the temple. And when he went up there, they encountered an old man. Mary and Joseph encountered an old man. His name was Simeon. And when Simeon saw the little baby, we're told he'd been praying for the redemption of Israel, he went and he took the child in his arms and he said, Lord, let now thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared for all the world, a light to enlighten the Gentiles, and what? The glory of thy people Israel. In the Old Testament, the promise was that the coming Messiah would not be just the Messiah of a particular nation, the Jews. He would be the Savior of the whole world. And the means by which God is bringing salvation to the world is he calls the Jews, they reject the Messiah, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and it's through the Gentiles and their acceptance of the gospel that the Jews are then provoked to jealousy, and ultimately God brings about a great revival in the lives of his ancient people. Now that's what Romans 9 through 11 is really all about. So there is an urgency, we said the last time we met, on the part of Gentiles to share the gospel with the Jews. We have an obligation to do that. Now, there are some who believe that, no, we should not be doing that, that actually the Jews are under a completely different covenant from us. There's even a movement in the church to say that taking the gospel to the Jews in the wake of the Holocaust is anti-Semitic. My response to that is simply this. The Apostle Paul didn't feel that it was anti-Semitic. The Apostle Peter didn't believe that it was anti-Semitic. They took the gospel to the Jews. Peter spent most of his time in his ministry as an apostle ministering among the Jews. And it's interesting that even the apostle Paul, when he went into a new community to preach the gospel, always went first and foremost to the synagogue if there was one. Now, there were a few occasions when there was no synagogue available. Uh, a notable example of this would be Ephesus. When Paul went to Ephesus, that was such a Roman city founded by former soldiers of the Roman army, that there was no synagogue there. He had to get down by the river to meet people and to share the gospel. And we're told that that's where Lydia was converted to the faith. But when there was a synagogue, Paul always went first and foremost to the synagogue and preached the gospel. We see this in Acts chapter 13, when Paul went to Pisidian Antioch and he preached the gospel there in the synagogue. And then over the course of the next week, dissension arose among the Jews. And we're told that when Paul came back the following Sabbath, that he was persecuted. Remember, he was driven out of the place. The Jews talked against him because they were filled with jealousy. Well, do you remember what Paul and Barnabas said on that occasion? They said, we had to come to you first. We had to do that because salvation is of the Jews. But since you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are now turning to the Gentiles. So that is what God has been doing, and we are called to do the same thing. We are called to take the gospel to the Jewish people. Because salvation, you understand, is not just a future thing. We talk about being saved. That's not just a future event. You understand that when the Apostle Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about an event that took place in the past, but something we're experiencing in the future and something we will experience in its fullness in the future. In the present, we experience, excuse me. In the past, it's something that happened in the past. It's something we experience in the present. It is something we will enjoy in its fullness in the future. That's what Paul is saying. So it's very 
true to say, if somebody says, well, when were you saved? Now, some of you can remember the exact day when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior. You remember the day when you were converted. Maybe you don't remember the exact date, but you remember that moment in time when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and your life forever changed. But if somebody says, when were you saved? It is also true to point back to Calvary and say, when was I saved? I was saved when Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for my sin. So in a real sense, your salvation is a past experience. It's something that happened when Christ gave himself for you and for your salvation. But it is also something that you enjoy in the present. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and what? Have it to the full, abundantly, abundant life, full life. So it's something that we experience here and now, but it is not something that we know in all its fullness. It is something that we will experience in the future when we are made like Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I tell you that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the what? The glory that shall be revealed to us. So in a very real sense, we were saved in the past, 2,000 years ago, on Calvary. We are saved now and in the process of being saved because sanctification is a process. And one day, we shall know that salvation fully. So we should take the gospel to the Jews because even those who think that they are under a separate covenant, and I'm going to make the argument that that is not the case, and you'll see why in a moment, but even if you really believe that they are under a separate covenant from us, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be taking the gospel to them today because salvation is not just a future event. It is something that we are meant to enjoy in the here and now. Now, we talked about how you do that. I think you have to do that respectfully when you take the gospel to the Jews because obviously they do have a rich history and Paul talks about all the spiritual benefits that they have that they had the prophets, they had the law, they had the promises, they had the covenant, and so forth. So I think we have to go to the Jews respectfully. We also have to go to them relationally. Uh, we have to get to know them so that they can trust us. Oftentimes, as Christians, we tend to gravitate toward those people who are only like us. Let's just be honest. That's the easy thing to do as human beings, is to go to the people that are just like us. And if people are not like us, we have a tendency to steer away from them. But the only way to evangelize the unbeliever is to go to people who are not like us. That's one of the reasons why Jesus was willing to sit down with tax collectors and sinners. Didn't mean that he necessarily condoned their behavior, but it does mean that Jesus wanted to reach them, and the only way to do that was to develop a relationship with them. We need to be willing to do that. We talked about this. Make a friend, be a friend, bring a friend to Christ. We also have to model help and service. Actions do speak louder than words. Jesus set us an example of servanthood, and we need to be servants to our neighbors, and the Jews are our neighbors. We also have to put on love. Love, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love that thinks of the other before we think of self. Love is a difficult thing for us. We often think of love as a pure emotion because that's what the song says. Isn't that what Tina Turner said? What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? That's the way we think of love. People oftentimes say to me, well, how do I love the unlovable? Well, that's we find that difficult to do, loving the unlovable. Why? Because we think of love in terms of an emotion. And then what, what we do, think about the way we talk about love today. We talk about love as though it's something that happens to us by chance or by accident. We talk about falling in love with somebody. I sometimes counsel couples who are having difficulty in their marriage, and I'll say, well, what's going on? And they'll inevitably reply, well, we just seem to be falling out of love. As though it's something that happens to you by chance, like falling down a flight of stairs or falling into a mud puddle or falling out of a chair. It just happens to us by chance or by accident. But actually, if you listen to what the Apostle Paul says about, about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the things you quickly realize is that it is hard work. Just keep your finger there in Romans for a moment and turn just to the right in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We all know this passage. 
I'd love to preach on this passage at weddings. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Endures all things? At a wedding, I always love to say, you know, love is always patient and always kind. That's one for the men. Love is always patient and always kind. Men, how many of you are always patient and always kind? Let's see a show of hands. And if you do, I'm going to go on to talk about lying. As, um, but how many of us, how many of us, you know, get up and, and don't get frustrated or are irritable? You know, when you preach on this at a wedding and you say, you know, here's one for the men. Love is always patient, always kind. Inevitably, you see a woman elbowing her husband. That's you. That's, he's talking about you. But I always say, and here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. How often do we keep a catalog of offenses, you see? What you quickly realize is that what Paul is talking about is not accidental. It is not emotional. It is an act of the will. We choose to love regardless of how we feel. And it has to do with our actions more than our feelings. That's one of the reasons why many marriages fail today is because people think that love is an emotion. And as our emotions change, our affections change, we feel the need. Indeed, we feel that we have a right to happiness. And if I'm not happy, I need to get out of the relationship. But that's not the way that Paul describes it here. So when we think about evangelism, whether it's to the Jews or to anybody, we have to be loving and we have to understand that love does indeed bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. But sooner or later, even after you've made friends with Jews and even though you have grown to love them and they've grown to trust you, there does come a point where you have to be willing to speak the gospel to them. This is a hard thing to do, and it's not just hard to do with Jews, it's hard to do with anybody. We realize that you built the relationship and you don't want to do anything to damage the relationship, and you recognize that if you speak Christ to them, there is the danger that that may happen. But the reality is if you really love them, you want what's best for them, you cannot avoid talking about Jesus Christ. So Paul says we are to reach out to God's ancient people. We are to bring them into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ that they might enjoy the same blessings that we are now enjoying as a result of their partial hardening. Now, what Paul does here, going back to Romans chapter 11, is that he introduces an illustration at this point, and it's an illustration of an olive tree. Now, if you've been to the Holy Land or you've been to the Middle East, you know that olive trees are everywhere. They are plentiful. Uh, they are a major industry in that part of the world. Olives are used for all sorts of things. Of course, they are a food, but you also crush the olives and produce the oil, and the oil can be used for cooking. It can be used for a host of things. So this is a common image. It was an image that was used, at least in part, in the Old Testament to describe Israel. Now, it was not the most obvious ex uh, illustration that was used in the Old Testament. Normally, the illustration that is used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel is the image of the vine. But the olive tree is also used, particularly in Jeremiah and Hosea, and we'll take a look at those two passages in a moment. But what Paul does is he introduces this image of the wild olive shoot and the olive tree 
to help us understand our relationship to Israel and Israel's relationship to God. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now this is an illustration. What's the point of an illustration? Well, Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher in the 19th century, who was a master of illustrations, incidentally, described illustrations as windows. When a, when a preacher is delivering a sermon and he's trying to make a point, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And so they'll give you an image, something to sort of give you a snapshot of what they're trying to talk about. Spurgeon described, a win, uh, described an illustration as a window that lets the light in. Jesus was a master of illustrations. That's basically what his parables were. Jesus did this perhaps better than anybody else. Well, what Paul is trying to do here is he's talking about deep subjects here. He's talking about the relationship of Israel to God. He's talking about the relationship of Gentiles to Israel and to God. And these are deep subjects. In fact, Paul describes them as mysteries. And so what he wants to do at this point is sort of let some light in so that we can understand it. And he tries to give us a picture, and the picture is of the olive tree, something that would have been very familiar to many people. But unfortunately, some illustrations are better than others. <laughs> And many people have found Paul's illustration of the olive tree to be very difficult to understand. Why do they find it difficult to understand? Because some people are not entirely sure who Paul is talking about here when he speaks of the olive tree. When he talks about the branches that have been grafted in and the branches that have been cut off. Is Paul talking about individuals here? Or is he talking about nations here is he talking about individuals if he's talking about individuals this is problematic if he's saying that individuals can be cut off from the tree and the olive tree represents God's promise his his covenant nation if we can be cut off from the promises of God the covenant then what that means is that you and I can lose our salvation is that what God is talking about here is that what Paul means here? Or is God talking about nations here? Is God saying, no, it's not about individuals. You can't lose your salvation because that would seem to be contrary to what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 8. That what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, he says, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come. Nothing else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. So the idea that what Paul is talking about as individuals here doesn't seem to fit with what he had said just a few chapters earlier. So somebody says, no, Paul's not talking about individuals here when he talks about the olive tree and branches being cut off and branches being grafted in. What he's really talking about is nations. He's talking about nations. What he's basically saying is that there was this tree and the branches, the natural branches have been cut off and wild branches have been grafted in. What are the natural branches? Israel. What are the unnatural branches that have been grafted in? The Gentiles. What's the problem with that particular view? Well, that particular view suggests to us replacement theology. That suggests to us that what has happened is that God has forsaken Israel. He's cut Israel off, and instead he has turned and saved the Gentiles. Now, the problem with that view is it just doesn't seem to fit with what Paul says later on in this very same chapter. So, Paul is not talking about individuals... And he's not talking about nations. Who exactly is he talking about? <laughs> and I can tell you, I must have 30 commentaries on Romans, just on the book of Romans in my library, 
and you probably have about 20 different opinions on just this one subject. So Paul is giving us an illustration that is designed to let the light in, but the reality is for many people, it has obscured what he is really trying to stay. Well, I want to suggest to you that even though this may be a hotly contested illustration, if we step back for a moment and take a look at this and don't get bogged down in the weeds, I think the illustration that Paul uses here can be very helpful. I think part of the problem is this. We do have a tendency to get down into the weeds. You see this with the Lord's parables. When Jesus told a parable, I want you to understand something about parables. Parables are not like fables. All right? You know what a fable is. A fable is a story that's designed to teach you some sort of a moral lesson, but it always contains fantastic elements, like Aesop's fables in which you have animals that talk, for example. The Lord's parables are not like that. There aren't fantastic elements in the Lord's parables, like the parable of the prodigal son. You don't see that sort of thing. But nor are the Lord's parables allegories. What is an allegory? It's a story that is designed to teach you again a moral lesson. But every aspect of the story is filled with meaning or purpose. Like Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory in which every character is meant to teach us something. So you have people like Miss Busywork. You know, every character, every person in there, who's the main character in that? Christian. Who is Christian's companion? Hope. See, every character, every aspect of the story is pregnant with meaning, with purpose, with significance. I want you to understand the Lord's parables are not like that. The Lord's parables are neither allegories nor are they fables. A parable is a simple story, not, I say simple, not simplistic, not simplistic, but simple. It's a story that is drawn from real life, and it is designed to teach you one, maybe two lessons, one or two spiritual lessons. Every part of the story does not have significance. Let me give you an example of what I mean. When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, that story was meant to teach us about God and about us. That, that's the main lesson. It's, it's not difficult. It is an easy lesson. What is the story of the prodigal son? Well, you know, there is a man. He's got two sons. One of those sons comes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance and I want it now. Now, you understand that in the first century, to go to somebody and say, I want my inheritance. You didn't get your inheritance until your father died. So when you go to your father and you say, I want my inheritance and I want it right now, I demand what's coming to me, you're basically saying to your father, I wish you were dead. And you know the story. The father gives him what he wants and he goes off into a distant land and he squanders it on profligate living. The NIV describes it as loose living. I don't need to describe what that means. You know. Some of you have experienced it. But he goes off and he spends all of his inheritance. And then we're told he comes to his senses. And he decides that he would be better off as a slave in his father's household. And so he decides to go back home. And he expects that when he gets back home, his father is going to reject him. But instead, what happens? The father is watching for him, comes out and meets him on the road, puts his arms around him, puts a mantle about his shoulders, put a ring on his finger, and he brings him in and he kills the fatted calf and he rejoices that this son who was lost has been found. Now, what's the point of that story? The point of the story is simple. That's a picture of you and me. We were part of a family. We had a loving father. We decided to go off and do our own thing. And we brought ourselves to absolute ruin. And some of us, by the grace of God, have come to our senses. We've turned around. We've gone back to our father. And instead of finding rejection, what do we find from God the Father? But mercy, grace, pardon, acceptance, and welcome back into 
the family. Now, that's what the story is meant to teach. But if you get bogged down on thinking, well, what do the pigs represent? I, I remember that that guy ended up living with the pigs and longing even for the pods that the pigs ate. If you get bogged down on that, now, what do the pigs represent in this story? You've missed the forest for the trees. And I think when it comes to an illustration like this, many people get bogged down in the details. And they miss what Paul is trying to say. For example, some people have pointed out, well, the illustration really doesn't work because you would never graft wild olive shoots into a cultivated tree. It's the other way around. You would take the cultivated olives and graft them into a wild olive tree. That's, that's the way it works, not the other way around. So somebody says, this illustration doesn't make point. I think Paul would say, you are not listening to what I'm trying to say. You're missing the point. It's like concentrating on the pigs when the story's not even about the pigs. I think when we step back and actually look at the illustration, don't get bogged down in the details. Is he talking about individuals? Is he talking about nations? What does it mean that a cultivated olive tree should be grafted into a wild olive tree or vice versa? If you step back from all of that, I think it becomes very clear what Paul is trying to teach us here. And he's not talking about nations and he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the mass of humanity. And what he's basically saying is that there is one family of God, one root, and that root is Abraham, who is our father in the faith. And he is the father of both Jews and Gentiles. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans? That the true children of Abraham are not the children who are simply children by birth or by blood, but those who are of the promise, who have faith. That's the whole argument that he makes in Romans chapter 4. Turn back for just a moment to Romans chapter 4. <coughs> Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heir, for if the inheritance of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. See, you and I are children of Abraham every bit as much as somebody who was born a Jew. Because the true children of Abraham are the children who have accepted the promise of God by faith. So when Paul talks about an olive tree, the olive tree represents Abraham. He is the root of the tree. Who are the broken branches? Well, the broken branches are those Jews, not the nation as a whole, but those Jews who have specifically rejected the gospel. Now, this is nothing new. This is born testimony here in Romans, but also in John's gospel. He came to that which was his own, and his own what? Received him not. So they are the broken branches, not the nation as a whole, but individuals who are the grafted branches. Well, the grafted branches obviously are the Gentiles. Those Gentiles, not as a whole, not as a complete group, but rather those Gentiles who have believed the gospel. They are the ones who have been grafted in to the family of God. It's what we saw back in Acts chapter 13. 
Paul says, since you reject the gospel, we now turn to the Gentiles. And we're told that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Remember that passage? We thought it would be the other way around. As many as believed were appointed to eternal life. But that's not what the passage says. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's really what this illustration is meant to teach us. That God has a family. And the Jews as a nation, as a people, were part of that family. But some of those people have rejected the gospel and they have been cut off from that family. But there are others who were outside that covenant community who have believed the gospel. They were wild. They were not originally a part of the family, but they have been grafted in. And that's you and that's me. Now that's the main point of the illustration. Don't get bogged down in the other stuff. Paul is not talking about individuals losing their salvation. He's not talking about nations. He's talking about the mass of humanity. This is just a picture of salvation. And when you step back and you look at the illustration of the olive tree in that way, all of a sudden, a number of lessons begin to materialize. What are those lessons? The lesson is, the first lesson is this, that there is one people of God. This is contra the dispensationalist view that God has two people and two different covenants and he treats them in two different ways. The Jews are on one track to salvation and Gentiles are on another track of salvation. Now that's what many churches teach. I want to suggest to you that that is not the witness of scripture. And I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Paul talks about there being one family, one people. You see this in a very powerful way when you turn to Ephesians. So keep your finger there in Romans for just a moment and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 11. Now you remember that Paul's letter to the Ephesians was a letter to a Gentile church. I mentioned Ephesus earlier. Ephesus was a city that had been established by former soldiers of the Roman army. It was one of the most Roman cities that Paul would have visited in the ancient world. Now, they were all Roman to some degree because they were under the authority of Rome. But this was one that was unique. As I said, it had been founded by former soldiers of the Roman army. You may recall from the book of Acts, Paul's visit to Ephesus. He went there and couldn't even find any place to be. It was like Philippi. It was hard to find anything. And so Paul went into Ephesus and he tried his best to preach the gospel. But he was dealing primarily with Gentiles here. He was not dealing with Jews in Ephesus. But look at what he says about these Ephesians, these Gentile Christians. In Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 11 he says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's a depiction of these Ephesian Christians. He says, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. You wild olive branches, if you will, have now been brought near. You have been grafted in. You who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has made the two people one people. There's only one people of God, my friends, and it is those who know and are known by Jesus Christ. There's not one track for one particular people and one track for another people. The whole point of Christ's death upon the cross was to break down the dividing wall of hostility and make one people out of the two. That's one of the first lessons that we learn. There's one people of God, not two. 
Second lesson that we learn about this image of the olive tree when we step back and look at it from a distance is this. All the people of God, whether they are Jewish believers or whether they are Gentile believers, are expected to be fruitful. I said this image of the olive tree is not used frequently in the Old Testament to describe Israel. Most of the time it's the image of the vine. But there are a couple of exceptions to this. One is the passage from Hosea chapter 14 verse 6 in which Israel is described as a flourishing olive tree. Flourishing, stretching out its branches over the whole world. That's the idea of fruitfulness, a growing tree. The other passage is Jeremiah chapter 11, 16 through 17, in which Israel is described as an olive tree, but an olive tree that God cuts down. I want you to keep your finger there in Romans and turn back now to the Old Testament to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 11. And let's just take a look at this image and why it is that this olive tree gets cut down. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. Well, why? Why, why is God going to cut down this tree? The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Why does God cut down this tree which he planted and which was once fruitful because it has ceased to be fruitful. It has turned from the things of God, and it has turned to the worship of Baal, and because it is no longer fruitful, it is no longer good for anything, and so God does what? He cuts it down. So there's one people of God, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are as much a part of the new Israel, if you will, as those who were born Jews and believe. You are a true child of Abraham. But if you are a true child of Abraham, if you really are a part of that olive tree, then you are expected to be fruitful. Just as Israel was expected to be fruitful. And if the branches are not fruitful, what happens to them? Paul says they are cut off. Now, what does it mean to produce fruit? Well, it's interesting. You find an example of what we're talking about when it comes to fruitfulness, not here in Romans, but in John. Jesus did an extensive teaching on fruitfulness in John chapter 15, where he invokes an image not of an olive tree, but of the vine. I said that the vine is really the most frequent image that is used in Scripture to describe Israel. And the people of God. And here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is what? Thrown away. That is to say, cut off like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Jesus makes it very clear. He is 
the root. Like Abraham was the root in Paul's image. And if we abide in that tree, if we abide in that branch, we will flourish. And one of the signs that we are flourishing is that we will produce fruit. But what happens if we don't produce fruit in both images, in Paul's image in Romans 11 and in Jesus' image there in John, what happens to the unfruitful branches? They are cut off. So there's one people of God. Those people of God are expected to bear fruit. But you'll notice, and this is another lesson that I think we can glean from Paul's image in Romans chapter 11. Bearing fruit is not something that we do in and of our own strength. It's not a matter of effort. It's a matter of abiding. It's a matter of abiding. Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. In other words, we abide in Christ. We live for Christ. And the result of that is that we will bear fruit fruit. The Gentiles were not saved by virtue of anything they had done. They didn't decide that they were going to graft themselves into the natural olive tree. God, by his grace, by his mercy, grafted them in. And we have to remember that you and I are not saved by virtue of anything we do. Our good works are not the means of salvation. They are the consequence of salvation. If we are abiding in Christ, we will bear fruit. An apple tree does not have to work at producing fruit if it's a healthy tree. If it's healthy, it will automatically bear fruit. If you and I are abiding in Christ, we will automatically bear fruit. That's why we look at our lives and we ask, are we producing fruit? Are we producing the fruit of the Spirit? That's one of the signs of salvation. If somebody wants to know, am I truly saved? Look at your life and ask yourself, am I being fruitful? And fruit, you understand, I'm sure you've heard me say this before, fruit, as the New Testament understands it, is not just good works in the eyes of the world. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The question you have to ask yourself is, as you look back over the course of your life, if you look at your life now, can you see yourself growing in grace? Now, you might think to yourself, well, I've got a little bit of fruit, but I'm certainly not very fruitful. That's okay. What does Jesus say in John 17? Abide in me and you will bear fruit. And those branches that produce fruit, the Father will prune that they might what? Produce more fruit. Now, some of us need a lot of pruning. But the point is this. As you look back over the course of your life, you should see yourself growing. You may not have arrived by any stretch of the imagination because, again, sanctification is a lifelong process. It's only in heaven that we shall be made like Christ. But you should see yourself growing. You should see more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. If you see yourself going the opposite direction or you're completely stagnated, that's a problem. That's a problem. So the Gentiles are saved, not by virtue of anything they do, but by the grace of God. They've been grafted in. And what was true for them, here's another lesson, is also true for the Jews. It was a matter of God's grace that they were ever a part of the tree to begin with. Why did God choose the Jews? Not because they were a great nation, not because of anything that they had done, because it pleased him to do so. They were the least of all the peoples of the earth, and God set his affection on them. And if they had been cut off because of unbelief, and indeed many of them have, he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. The promise is nevertheless this, because God is gracious and merciful, if he has cut them off, he is also capable of grafting them back in. He is also capable of grafting them back in. So we shouldn't think, well, they've been cut off now and they're lost forever. If he can take wild olive shoots and graft them in to the natural tree, 
then he can take those branches from the natural tree that have been cut off and graft them back into the natural tree. That is what God can do. And that is what Paul says God is doing in Israel. That's what he means when he says the gospel went to the Jews. They rejected it. It went to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have now received it. And we are to live in such a way that we provoke the Jews to jealousy that the branches that have been cut off might be grafted back in again. That's the whole point. And that's what God is doing. He said this is a mystery, but it is a mystery that has now been revealed to you and to me. So you see, it's really a powerful illustration of what God is doing in history among the Jews and among the Gentiles for the glory of his name. But Paul is going to end this section with a warning. A warning to us, to you and to me, to Gentile Christians. Because there is the tendency, since we are in this gift of salvation, and Paul warns us about Boasting. He warns us about boasting. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. This is a solemn warning to Christians against anti-Semitism. And there is a lot of that. Just think about the way we talk about Jews. He said, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, these branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. I want to say this, and I want to say it very clearly because I think this is what Paul is getting at. There is no place whatsoever in the life of a Christian for anti-Semitism. There's just no place for it. There have been moments in the history of the church and the lives of some of the greats, like Martin Luther, I'm sorry to say, where anti-Semitism was prevalent. But I'm going to here to tell you right now, there is no place for it, and Paul makes it very clear. If they have been lost, it is our responsibility as Christians to live in such a way that they see in us something different, something that they long for, something that they want that they too might be saved because God still loves them. And if he grafted us in wild olive shoots, he can certainly graft them back in as well. Paul warns us against the dangers of spiritual prosperity. <coughs> spiritual prosperity. We enjoy the blessings of God's salvation now, and so we become arrogant as a result. Here's another lesson that I think we can learn from this image of the olive tree, and that is there are great dangers to spiritual prosperity. The blessings we receive can cause us to become puffed up. We might think to ourselves, well, God loves us because we're lovable. God has blessed us because why wouldn't he want to bless us? God cares for us because, well, we're worth caring for. It reminds me of a quote by Cotton Mather. Do you know who Cotton Mather was? He was one of the great 17th century Puritan divines. You know, the Puritans get a bad rap these days, but the Puritans were great people. Cotton Mather, who was buried in Boston, had this wonderful expression. He said, wherever Christianity has gone, it has always left the people more prosperous than they were before. And, and that is a fact. That's a fact of history. Wherever the Christian gospel has gone, it has really blessed people. They have benefited from Christianity. You look at the Christian nations of the world, they are always more prosperous than nations that are Islamic or something else. The people flourish more. They tend to have more blessings. It's a wonderful thing that Christianity has done. He said, but here's the problem. Wherever Christianity goes, it leaves the people better off than they were before, more prosperous, wealthier than they were before. He said, but then the daughter devours the mother. 
the daughter devours the mother. In other words, Christianity makes us prosperous, and then our prosperity ultimately devours our Christianity. And that is certainly true. We Gentiles think, oh, well, we have been grafted in. That's because we're better than the Jews. They have rejected God. But Paul says, do not become arrogant. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And if God can cut them off, he can cut you off as well. This is also a solemn warning, not only to us as individuals, but to institutions. I think about some of the churches that have forsaken the gospel, who are no longer abiding in the root, who are no longer producing fruit, and what you see is that God cuts those churches off. You can see this historically. You look at the great churches that once existed in the ancient world that no longer exist. Think about the places that Paul went and visited in the ancient world on his missionary journeys. The great churches in Ephesus and Philippi in Corinth and Rome. Where are those churches today? Think about the churches in Turkey. Paul's first missionary journey was to Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all of what is now Asia Minor. The gospel eventually would spread to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These are the great churches that are mentioned in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. These were great churches in the first century and in the second century and in the third century of the church. And I ask you the question, where are those churches today? Established by the apostles, they are no longer there. There came a point where what? They stopped producing fruit. What was the problem for the church in Laodicea described in John's revelation? They were what? They were lukewarm. He said, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will do what? Spit you out of my mouth. There was a point where they were hot, but they became lukewarm. And that's what God despised. It's sort of like tea. How many of you like hot tea? How many of you like iced tea? How many of you like lukewarm tea? Well, if you do, there's something wrong with you. I've just got to be honest with you. But I'd rather you be hot or rather you be cold. But if you're lukewarm, what happens? You get spit out. Well, that's what happened to these churches. You think about the next generation of churches, the churches in North Africa. Now, these are churches that you and I are not necessarily familiar with, but it's out of these churches in North Africa when the gospel went down into that part of the world that some of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church were born. Tertullian, Cyprian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Athanasius, the Athanasian Creed, and perhaps the most famous of all, Augustine. St. Augustine, next to the Apostle Paul, nobody has been a greater theologian in the history of the church than Augustine. All of these, what we call the church fathers, all came out of the church in North Africa. Where is that church today? Where are all those churches in North Africa? Every single one of them is now Islamic countries. Every single one of them. It's replaced by Islam. You say, well, what about the church in Rome? Well, the church in Rome, as we know, in the Middle Ages became extremely corrupt. That's one of the reasons why Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in opposition to the fact that the church, which was supposed to be proclaiming the grace of God, was now dispensing salvation by the selling of plenary indulgences. John Tetzel, a Dominican monk, was going through the villages saying, for every coin and coffer rings a soul from Purgatory Springs. That church had become so corrupt that it took a reformation, which ultimately turned into a revolution, to change that church. And think about the churches of the Reformation. Even those churches that really were renewed by the Reformation. All the Scandinavian countries drank deeply from the well of the Reformation. Germany, that's where it all started with Martin Luther in Wittenberg. What happened to those churches today in Germany, Switzerland, France, Holland, 
I'm told that 4% of the population in those countries attend church today. 4%. These were the churches established by Luther, Bootser, Calvin. 4% of the population. What happened to these churches? They became lukewarm. They stopped producing fruit. And what happened to them? They were cut off. And they withered and they died because apart from the vine, the branch will wither. And think about the churches in Britain and the United States. Britain in the 18th century produced people like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. Here in the 18th century in America, we produced the only truly great theologian that we've ever produced, Jonathan Edwards. New England, which is now one of the most liberal parts of the country, was at one point in the 18th century the most devoted evangelical part of all the colonies. And what has happened to the church in England? Less than half the population, they say maybe 20% of the population in England, in the Church of England, the Church of Wesley, Whitfield, just a fraction of the population now attend church. And what about here in America? We have a whole generation that are referred to as the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. A whole generation of young people who have never been raised in the church. The average young person that you meet on the street today at the College of Charleston, if you were asked them what church were you raised in, they will tell you they were not raised in any church at all. They call them the nuns because when they fill out forms and it says religious preference, they put none. They have none. What has happened? The church has become lukewarm. The church has forsaken its first love. Like the branches of the olive tree that were not fruitful, they have withered and died. And it's not just the church at whole. Just take a look at some of the denominations because we're so familiar with denominations. The Protestant mainline churches from 1990 to 2020... The American Baptist Church, that's not the Southern Baptist Church, that's the Northern American Baptist Church, has lost 23% of its membership, 23%. The United Methodist Church has lost 31% of its membership. The Episcopal Church has lost 36% of its membership. And that's just from 1990 to 2020. 36% of its membership. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, 41% of its membership. The United Church of Christ, 52% of its membership. The Presbyterian Church USA, 58% of its membership. The mainline denominations between 1958 and 2008 have lost 20 million members. And what is interesting is that you will notice that in every single one of those Protestant mainline denominations, it has been the gospel of liberalism. In every single one of those denominations, it has been a case where once great churches, churches that made a profound impact in mission and in ministry in the world, those churches have lost confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the authority of his scriptures, and they have turned and they have followed the ways of the world, and the result is that they are bleeding members left and right, and it is because they have been cut off from the vine, and they are withering as a consequence, and they can't seem to even see it. It's a race to the bottom. The leaders of those denominations, if they were the head of the Chrysler Corporation or Ford, would have been fired years ago. But that's what we see happening in our world. And it happens everywhere where people forsake the gospel. Everywhere where they fail to abide in Christ. They find themselves severed from their lifeblood and they wither and they die. And Paul says, don't let that happen to you. Abide in him. Remain in him. Trust in him with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And Jesus said, you will produce much fruit. God grant that in a world in which people are cutting themselves off 
from the nourishing lifeblood of Jesus Christ that we might be a people who abide in him all the days of our life and produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's message here in Romans chapter 11. There is much here for us to think about and drink in. Let us not become arrogant and think, oh, we are great people, and that's why God has extended his mercy and his love to us. Grace is an expression of your compassion and your mercy toward those who deserve nothing, who are unlovable, and you've shown it to us. Let us receive this grace by faith. Let us abide in Jesus Christ that we might produce fruit. And then prune us, Lord, that we might produce more fruit. That the whole world might come to know Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.